views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up. No Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Currently hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed and Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition's communications manager Leila Aziz. On this weekly broadcast, <clears throat> we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. We are the official educational and introductory program representing the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. If you want to know about the new abolitionist movement and what it's about, this is officially the place to start. Today is the December 13th, 2017 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. Tonight's geminid meteor shower will be visible from every country on Earth. On this day in history, the birth of the National Guard, 1636, the Massachusetts Bay Colony organizes three militia regiments to defend the colony against Pequot Indians. The organization is recognized today as the founding of the United States National Guard. Alabama Senate election, prisoners getting Voting rights, Coca-Cola slave plantations, a grandmother mauled by police dogs, Daniel Shaver's murder, and a pregnant woman in jail tased by overseers for not complying fast enough. As always, we'll have discussions, examine current news, and connect all the dots about modern legalized slavery. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is James G. Burney, one-time slave owner. He's also the only person in Alabama who is pinned so far on the Abolitionist Map of America, an interactive map that shows people and places from the abolitionist movement. In the segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we will remember Kingdom Coming, the largest slave rebellion in the U.S. history. It's a matter of perspective. A rider of the 21st century Underground Railroad is Alabama inmate Anthony Ray Hinton, who in April of 2015 walked out of prison as a free man after 30 years on death row. If you got a question or a comment, you can call us toll free at 866-510-9025. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash 
Black Talk Radio Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? How you doing, Layla? Hey, peace. Let me get Layla uh, unmuted. All right. I'm doing okay, Max. I'm doing the best I can behind these enemy lines. Uh, greetings to you as well, Sister Layla. Greetings, brothers. How you guys doing? I'm doing really good and excited about the conversation today. Yeah, me too. Uh, man, there's always so much to cover. And the wonderful part about here is that we cover it from an abolitionist perspective, which is something you just do not hear enough of. I mean, people always look at it from the perspective of a reformist, usually, or maybe something else, but rarely is it an abolitionist perspective. And that changes everything. I agree. I agree, and more people need to have the correct perception of what is going on. Again, I know there were well-meaning people when they came up with the phrase mass incarceration, but that's just a politically correct, more palatable way of saying slavery. Just say slavery is it's one word. You don't have to use two words. It's just one word, slavery. And it relays the right. reality of what we're facing. I think that the uh, issue with that, Scotty, is um, people have overused words, uh, very powerful words that really do mean something. They've overused them so much uh, and so loosely that now you really got to take it to a whole different level just for them to get it, the seriousness of it. There was a time when you could say slavery and it meant slavery. Now it's like, you know, you've got a whole list of things they might apply it to. Yeah, and you know that's one of my pet peeves about uh, people using metaphors to describe, like, you know, mental slavery, okay, just call it brainwashing or, or something like that. You know, I'm not trying to control people's language, but from an abolitionist perspective, it would lead to less confusion and it would not take the power of what you're naming away when we call it slavery, in my opinion. Yes, yes. Layla? I'm going to agree with both of you guys on that one. When we keep using things and terminologies, what it's doing, it's numbing the effect of the realness behind what we're saying. So when people, somebody told me today they were an abolitionist. And I was like, you're an abolitionist? And I'm like, what kind of abolitionist? Thinking they were going to say a prison or a slave abolitionist. They were like, oh, I'm an American abolitionist. Huh? <laughs> so I'm thinking, why are you using that term? You're just causing confusion. Yes, yes, it does cause confusion when you hear that, man. When people come out with different types of abolitionists as if they don't know slavery is going on here in the United States. I thought it was interesting, too, that the birth of the National Guard came forth by these militias organizing in their quest for colonization and land grabs and genocide. That's how they began. I didn't know that. I knew about the police starting as slave catchers, but I didn't know that the National Guard began as colonizers. Um, it's not surprising. I did not know that, Max, but it's not surprising. Everything is rooted in slavery. That seems to be the avenue that all these other things intersect with. They all intersect with slavery, in my opinion, and I did not know that. I'd like to report some good news that has happened recently. Uh, I've been in, uh, talking with some gentlemen out of Angola 
and they are very much interested in what we've been doing with the 13th Amendment and the abolitionist movement. And although they were able to participate in the prison labor work strike last year that was organized, they are looking forward to working with the abolitionists in any way they can and are organizing within Angola prison now. So uh, it was a nice long conversation and those brothers are really down right now. They, they, they're, they're with us. So I just want to report that. That's great news to hear. Um, I, I, and I hope those brothers are aware of the history of organizing in that prison as we remember the Angola Three. We still have Robert King with us. And, um, oh, man, he was just at, both of them were at the march. What's the other guy's name? Albert Wood Fox was there, yes. spent all those years in solitary confinement. And, unfortunately, the third member Help me, y'all, remember his name, but he passed away only days after finally being released. Uh, Herman, Herman uh, Wallace? No, it's not. Uh, was it Herman Wallace? I think you're correct, Max, but I'm not sure. There are just so many victims. Uh, you know, uh, it's just hard to keep up with them all, but the Angola Three have a history of organizing uh, prisoners there in that prison. Yes, Herman Wallace. Was the and are part of the abolitionist movement to abolish slavery. Yes, yes. Uh, he, he said as much at the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March when he gave his speech. He went on right after me, uh, Brother King. And uh, after he came off, he said the same thing. You know, I'm going to start calling it that too, slavery. It's so important to call it that. It makes all the sense in the world. You know, and uh, I think he's been doing so since then. I think this is Thank strong to how uh, many of. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Max. Uh, that's all right. Go ahead. I was just filling up blank spaces. Go ahead and say something later. Okay. <laughs> no, I was just saying. I think it's that's one of the things that really gets me. Um, it it really it gives me vision. It gives me direction, but it also knows I'm on the correct path. The fact that so many prisoners are um, mobilizing behind um, the abolition of slavery and the abolition of the 13th. They could use, they could be all types of abolitionists, as I've heard today, this word is used for many different types of things, but they are consistent on the 13th being a problem. And that demonstrates um, that these prisoners and um, returning citizens want safe communities. They love our communities. They want our children to thrive all of the things that our communities want, but they also want a, a first chance instead of a second chance when you never had a first chance. And they want to ensure that no one else gets caught up in the bondage of the legaliza legalization of slavery. Yes. I have yet to hear a prison tell me that they, they condone rapists and, and molesters and things of that nature. It hasn't happened. Right. And, you know, uh, within the prisons, it's it's not a monolith there either. Uh, people tend to be very religious uh, one way or another. In prison, you often find God, you know. So uh, you won't find a, a bunch closer to God than looking in prison. That's for instance. And I don't think they're all Democratic or Republican or can be called as such or anything like that either. I totally agree with you. That's, that's the place where many people find their spirituality. And they come into, um, they have the time and the space to really dig deep and deal with a lot of those things. Unfortunately, the prisons make people worse than they were. 
because of the trauma that's involved and the PTSD that goes on um, when you're released. But definitely spirituality, that's one of the pluses that happens in prison, in my opinion. When my son went into prison and the last time I saw him before he was sentenced to life, and he's out now, one of them at least, um, I told him, I wrote this poem called Dedicated to Justice, and in there there's a line that says, you will find your God because the Lord's mercy may be all you have left. And uh, a lot of us realize that, I guess, when we get in there, that really it's all you got left because you're at somebody's mercy 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You could disappear and barely a, a beep would go on the radar about it. Like the brother that just got brutalized in uh, Alabama and Swift Justice was discussing him. I, I believe his name was uh, Smith, Billy Smith. Billy Smith uh, was taken in the custody and within three days he was in the hospital on life support and then that. So yeah, once you're in there, you ain't got nothing. You can't even call it home. What is it? It's just a cage. You're trapped. There is no home. <laughs> wow. And I'd like to go and get on our stories unless you guys want to add something about your past week. Uh, I certainly would like to hear. Uh, I don't have anything to add, um, but we do have some very interesting stories to share. Yes, yes, yes. I know at the I top agree. of everybody's mind is what Roy Moore, right, and what happened with the Alabama election and a lot of the things that's come out of that. Uh, who wants to start with that? You know what? As a matter of fact, let me not even ask. Let me just point, because Layla, you've been involved with getting prisoners the right to vote on many levels, and it's been an inspiration to people all over the country, and other organizations are doing the same. So tell us how that came into play and what your thoughts are, are of it. Because, you know, that's like a secret heroic thing <laughs> that happened. I'm going to say this. I have children kind of coughing in the background. We're getting over flu season over here. We had three days of no school. But um, I will say this, that um, what led me to really look at voter disenfranchisement was the um, prison slavery abolition, the slavery abolition movement. Because anytime you start thinking of something that grand, um, such as a constitutional amendment, you have to start thinking um, on a practical basis of how you get there. How do you mobilize your base to get there? And who are those that are most impacted by that? And so looking at that and sometimes it's being frustrating um, trying to get there and trying to understand um, um, how do we get there and knowing, because I'm kind of, I'm one of those people, that I, I don't care what position I play, I'm on the ground, Right. So I've never been in the military, Scotty, but I'm sure if I was, however high I went, if they took me off the ground with the troops, I'd probably want to quit. But um, that's how I feel. So when I started looking at those different things and looking at um, ballot initiatives and looking at um, different policy and all of those different things, I started really seeing voter disenfranchisement. And really what stuck out to me was Florida. And that's where it began for me. And then, of course, what we had going on in California last year with the county jails being able to vote. And we got past that. My assemblywoman is the one who pushed that, Shirley, Dr. Shirley Weber, who is just an asset to our community, who comes right out of my actual area in San Diego. And so looking at those different things, looking at gang documentation, and I started to really start, I started to look at these things. So when I figured out that slavery was actually legalized through the 13th Amendment, it wasn't a constitutional amendment before then. So this country embraced slavery with the 13th Amendment. And then when I started looking at what happened directly after this emancipation
Emancipation Proclamation, or basically what it was, was we still like slavery, but we're going to take yours from you right now because you're not paying attention. We never told you we were going to take the slaves. We told you that we were going to have more power on how slaves were dealt with. That's my understanding from what, what went on when the civil, with the Civil War. For many, it wasn't a moral issue, and that kind of scared me. But then looking at the voter and how they systematically, first of all, criminalized everything and then took your rights as a citizen and how all of these things were strategically placed here for, for us as black people. Like other people are catching hell because of it, but these laws were for us. So how do we start really mobilizing and pushing? And sometimes I feel like we're going backwards to go forward and enfranchising people to vote so that we can start mobilizing our base and we can attack this 13th Amendment. And that's what we're doing now in California. We're on the ground. They tell me we need all these signatures in order to get it on the ballot, and then people have to vote for it on the ballot. But we're trying, and we're committed to getting the 600,000 signatures needed to put something on the ballot. Wow, that's Man. a tremendous effort. And anything I can do, the Black Talk Radio Network can do to help you all promote those efforts, whether that's running PSAs, giving people the contact information, because actually California is the number one state that tunes into Black Talk Radio Network. So anything I can do to help you with those efforts, please let me know, Sister Layla, and you are dead on point. Um, that is a symptom of 13th Amendment style slavery is to strip people of their voting rights. Okay. Cause we, we know pre 1865, even though the victims of slavery were counted in the census, they didn't have no representation, you know, so that's that three fifths clause right there that was in effect. But then after they so-called emancipated the victims of slavery like you said you know they come up with the black codes to criminalize all type of people behavior then put you into prison to hire you out as a prison slave and then even after you do your time you get out and you still are disenfranchised your rights still are not restored and that's why I say to people again I'm not criticizing people but when I tell when I hear people tell me Voting doesn't matter. And I say to them, well, for something that doesn't matter, they sure do take a lot of time, effort, and money to keep people from voting, to suppress the vote, to take away people's right to vote. So I'm with you on that, sis. Thank you so much. And I'm going to think of ways because we really need your support, Scotty. Thank you. What would be your ideal voting democracy would it be a hundred percent turnout um 70 percent turnout would be my ideal how much 70 percent turnout would be my ideal 70 percent why 70 percent because it's higher than what turning well 80 percent 80 percent would be my ideal it's um it's pretty much consistent with the highest voter turnout rate um 80 percent voter turnout just looking at the numbers and the different laws or the different people that were elected um, for certain populations can swing an, an entire vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also shows the, that's a high number, a high percentage. In my opinion, it would show the dedication of that voter base to show up and show out when needed. I was going, sorry. I'm sorry, did I interrupt you, Sister Layla? No, sir, you didn't. 
I was just going to say it depends on what voting block we're talking about on whether or not I want them to turn out. Because when we look at this special election, the Phil Jeff Sessions seat in the Senate in Alabama, um, there was only, even though black the black voting block, in my opinion, was the difference, but also it, what contributed as well was there was not normal turnout in those communities who are not friendly to our agenda um, of freedom. So they stayed home. Uh, black people came out, black voters that is, came out, those who were eligible to vote came out in higher than expected numbers. And it still was a slim, slim margin by which Doug Jones won. The last uh, statistical um, stats that I saw was that he beat Roy Moore by 1%. Now, if 1%, or 2% of the black voting bloc that turned out um, did not turn out, then we could be looking at a Senator Roy Moore. Or we could look at if the communities who historically have not been favorable to freedom, true freedom and liberty for all, if they had turned out just 2% more, then we will be talking about a Senator Roy Moore. So again, that just that slim victory just shows you how important voter turnout is. And more important for us as the black community is to restore the voting rights of those who have been disenfranchised. On, on many different levels, whether it's through prison slavery, whether it's through these voter ID laws and other voter suppression tactics. Well, I, I'd like to, I'd like to ask you both, what, what makes you think that 100% voter participation for the whole country is either impossible or not something you want to achieve? I'll go first, Sister Layla. I'm not looking for, I don't, I would never expect 100% turnout because I just know that I can't say anything about the white community because I don't have an ear to that community other than those I observe on Facebook and what they say. But I know in the black community, there is a segment of us who, again, don't think that voting matters. Okay. So I don't think that 100% turnout would be realistic. And then, you know, just the everyday issues of life, I think, would, would prohibit somebody from turning out. So I, I'm really not trying to come up with a magic number in terms of the entire voting electorate. I just know we need higher turnout, whatever that percentage is, than what it has been in the black community and I think we could make some tremendous progress in abolitionism whether we're talking about at the county level at the municipal level the state level or on the national level and everybody should know that what happens here in the United States tends to emanate or reverberate around the world I agree. I'm actually in fear of 100% voter turnout across the board. I'm in fear of tyranny of the majority. 
what I saw go, go happen in Alabama and what I've seen happen in other states where people are willing to elect a person that for the same reason, um, imagine if Barack Obama had been accused of dating a 14-year-old um, 30, 40 years ago. That man had to have the squeakiest clean image yet. And he still was told he wasn't a citizen and different things of that nature. We And, and, and I don't even know what people understand. Imagine being hostage that you can't make a mistake in life in order for you to appeal to, to the large majority. But others can do these crazy um, immoral and ethical things and still have a shot. And then people tell you that this country is no longer racist and believe it. That's scary to me. It shows cognitive dissonance across the board to me. For this man to have gotten the amount of votes and have gotten as many white women and white men as he had vote for him demonstrates that I'm afraid of 100% voting um, turnout for the white Bible Belt because I don't understand how Christianity and pedophilia go hand in hand together. I don't understand how, um, how we can even assume that, that it doesn't make any sense to me. And I think those conversations, because they're not being had, we're not really dealing with them. A man who said slavery um, back in America's greatest time in history was during slavery, and, and no one had an issue with that at his voting date because many of them believe the same thing. And they're saying that's not a racist situation, but what, as a black woman, that's all I see is racism laced with that. I see that you don't want people of color to have any power, and therefore it's okay if you stay home to me. But like Scotty said, I'm concerned with uh, progressive people of any color. I'm concerned with radicals coming out of any color. And that's, what, that's the base that I'm trying to really get going. I'm concerned with ex-offenders, because that's one base that I don't care which way they go. Because some of them are going to go away that I necessarily wouldn't, but that's the base that I think should be totally enfranchised. So therefore, if they went out 100%, I wouldn't have an issue with that. I don't want all black people voting, because some of them vote as horribly as some of the people who have my worst interests at heart. And so looking at that, I'm, that, that wouldn't be 100% to me. I think 13% of black men or black women, excuse me if I'm wrong, voted for Roy Moore. Like, I don't want you guys coming out, so that already takes me down to 87%. You see what I'm saying? Yes, and yes. So, and, I, and I agree that I have selfish reasons for this, but I know that everybody's vote is we got a long way to go in this country. Yes, we I, have a long, long way to go. Yes, and no I, one can tell me what happened in Alabama that we're past racism. Not if no, you can't tell me that anymore. And you what, couldn't tell me that before. And one of the things, Sister Layla, that I think would help us achieve a higher turnout among the demographics that are that will be amenable to to abolishing slavery is political education classes. Remember the Black Panther Party, that was part of their program and why they were afraid of Fred Hampton in the Black Panther Party because they were, if we take Fred Hampton for example, he was able to get these young cats out there in the street gangbanging to become more civically minded and participate in the political process. And again, that that mechanism was the Black Panther Party's political education classes. And I can't tell you, I'm trying to think, I'm thinking, and, you know, I can't remember 
ever being afforded a chance to attend a political education class. Right now, the voting populace is at the mercy of the corporate propagandists. And we know they fund both sides of the aisle. But I want to take it back to the issue of morality, if we can, for a second. That was a big issue in the Alabama race. And they're still making it an issue in terms of Donald Trump's election when he was on tape and bragged about sexually assaulting women and saying, because you're a celebrity, they'll just let you grab them by the you-know-what. And and so, but here is the thing, though. I'm concerned about people claiming that, hey, I'm casting a moral ballot when we saw, so we know Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Well, she was, she isn't a moral person. She isn't a moral woman. And my mother said to me today, she said last night for the very first time, she saw the video. She was watching PBS and they were showing a montage of, of different news events. And they showed Hillary Clinton uh, sitting in that room getting the message, and it was totally staged, but getting the message that Muammar Gaddafi, the prime minister of Libya, a head of state, had been murdered by those jihadists that's that's over there brutalizing black people right now. And for her to laugh like that and, and just that whole thing, my mother was horrified at that. And so let's not fool, let's, if we're going to talk about if we're going to make morality one of the benchmarks that a candidate has to meet, then let's, you know, let's just be real about it. Let's not ignore the crimes of some of these people, especially when they have long careers in politics that have been documented and time after time after time, they've been on the wrong side of issues. Don't You can't tell me that between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, that anyone, no matter how they voted, was casting a moral vote, in my opinion. Yes, I I hear you on that, Scotty. But I want to add some more to it, too, because I had to ask those questions for a specific reason. Uh, First of all, I believe that a 100% turnout is possible in today's technological age. It is very possible, especially with biometrics the way they are and with on the ground people who are willing to go out and get votes or uh, uh, information from like the homeless or uh, people who don't have an opportunity to be able to do a booth or if you could do it from your phone. Anything's possible to get 100% turnout. And uh, that would be, what did you see Layla call it? The tyranny of the majority, which is what it is anyway. No matter how many are turning out, we're always going to have a larger number of people uh, that are a majority because 75% basically of the country is white. So it's always going to be a larger majority, but it also exposes another war that's going on. And the other war is the war to keep people from voting. So you want to pick and choose who you do want to vote. You want some not to touch the ballot and you want others to get up off their ass and exercise their rights. And that whole, that whole rigmarole of, of that, political dance disgusts me. It just does. That's the parts about politics that I just don't like. Um, You know, because, first of all, let me read some of the amendments to you. Before you get to the amendments, uh, Max, I think Sister Layla kind of already answered that 
in her saying that we need to build coalitions. Again, this was what the Black Panther Party and Fred Hampton specifically worked, was focused on, was building coalitions among the oppressed. Now, you know, if we go back to Alabama again, if 2% less white voters had voted for Roy Moore than Doug Jones, then we still would be looking at a Senator Roy Moore. So I had to go with Layla on building coalitions with progressives, regardless of their color, regardless of their gender, regardless of their sexual orientation. Okay. Well, I, I, I don't, I guess I'm not trying to make or offer an alternative, but in addition to what's, what's being conversed here. So I'll start by reading the 15th Amendment, Constitution of the United States of America, 1789, revised in 1992. It's the 15th Amendment, Section 1. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So that that is the right that we possess right there to use or, or do not use, correct? Now, what is a citizen? That's 14th Amendment. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privilege or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So you can see that the 14th Amendment is another protection for the 15th Amendment, but still we hear in the news that Alabama shuts down all of the ID locations within black black communities. I believe it was 100% of them were within black communities. They had to reverse that. The ID. I saw that yes. story. They tried it at first. There was pushback by the black community and its allies and they reopened them. I, I saw that today. They would have done it if they could have got away with it, Scotty. Yes, they it would be the have, first time Max. or the last. Yes, but Max, yeah. I think you just gave Sister Layla some ammunition and all and, and because read that fifteenth amendment again. Okay? Read yes. the fifteenth amendment again, Max. The rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. What does the 13th Amendment start off with? Slavery and involuntary servitude shall be abolished except as punishment for crime. So... To me, felony disenfranchisement is a violation of the 15th Amendment. Am I just being hopeful here or overly optimistic? But I've never seen anybody present this argument. And it just occurred to me, because I'm going to be honest, I've never read the 15th Amendment. I've been so focused on the 13th Amendment. I know about some of the other amendments, but... I did not ever, I do not recall ever reading the 15th Amendment. And that tells me that even though these people just come out of what the 13th Amendment calls 
either slavery or involuntary servitude that the 15th Amendment prevents you from denying them the right to vote. Help me out, Sister Layla. Do you see what I see? It sounded like, because of how you said that, that how you read the 15th Amendment, that specifically um, places like Iowa and Florida are out of compliance constitutionally right now because they're disenfranchising people for life. Does that make sense? Wait a minute. Say that again. They're disenfranchising people for life. Sorry. Exactly. So because the 15th Amendment is saying that you cannot deny the person the right to vote based on race, da-da-da, or previous condition of servitude. The 13th Amendment allows slavery with servitude. So therefore, if you're no longer in slavery, as they say, how can you still deny them? How can you have a lifelong felony ban on the vote? Just to start there. Right. We want to do a lot more than that. We don't want to ever take away the vote. But it sounds like constitutionally that they're out of pocket from the jump. Yes. Yes. This is one of, well, those are two of at least seven amendments that are being habitually violated every single day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, everywhere you look. It's happening over and over and over again. Uh, The 14th, the uh, 15th, the only one that's being enforced from the perspective of the way it's written is the 13th Amendment. Agreed, All right, man. So let's re- Agreed, let's, let's get into some of these stories. Say, we say, Scotty. No, I was just saying that I agree with what you're saying, and but I'm like this. My, I just got excited over here reading the 15th Amendment. All right, and again, I ain't been to nobody's law school, but I know how to read and comprehend English. Okay, so you know this whole thing about having degrees. So that makes me wonder then. All these people that been to Harvard Law School, Yale Law School, and whatever other law schools are out there, how come this issue has never been raised? Question we've been asking now for years about these particular issues, and we have investigated it. You and I and Layla and all the abolitionists around have listened to the experts. I mean, the people who claim to be the most knowledgeable on the planet. We've listened to them together and broken down their conversation. So I guess the answer to that question is within those episodes of New Abolitionist Radio. So let me tell you what I just saw, man. Uh, I opened up the raw story that we have so I could read verbatim what Moore said about uh, getting rid of all the amendments after the 11th. And right in the center of the page is the Toys R Us uh, toy that's out now with the model police station, including a prison. It's pretty amazing to see something like that coming out from a toy company. But anyway, yes, I put a picture of it on New Abolitionist Radio. It's like, you open up your page, you're talking about slavery, and what do you see? Oh, slavery for kids. Y'all can learn how to be slave catchers and create slave pens right here with Toys R Us. All right, so anyway, reading past that image, today uh, I found the story where he talked about 2011 on 
uh, in 2011, he talked about this issue about how how they wanted to get rid of all these amendments. So Moore was on guesting on a far right radio show called the Aristook Watchman in June of 011, when one of the show's hosts suggested passing an amendment that would nullify all amendments from 11 to 27. That would eliminate many problems, Moore said. You know, people don't understand how some of these amendments have completely tried to wreck the form of government that our forefathers intended. One of the hosts said that the U.S. South only reluctantly agreed that slaves should be freed and allowed to enjoy human rights. And then he goes, people also don't understand, he said, and being from the South, I bet you get it. The 14th Amendment was only approved at the point of the gun. Yeah, it had very serious problems with its approval by the states, said Moore. The danger in the 14th Amendment, which was to restrict it, it has been a restriction on the state using the first 10 amendments by and through the 14th Amendment to restrict the states from doing something that the federal government government was restricted from doing and allowing the federal government to do something which the first 10 amendments prevented them from doing. If you understand the incorporation doctrine used by the courts and what it meant, you'd understand what I'm talking about. And that's his full quote right there. Uh, I'm not a constitutional amendment expert, but was there an amendment that only allowed white men the um, ability to vote in the first 10? No. The 13th uh, allegedly ended slavery, the 14th guaranteed equal protection, 15th uh, right to vote for African Americans, 18th was alcohol, 19th granted women the right to vote. Where were the white landowners? That wasn't an amendment to the Constitution at all? When they initially said only white male landowners could vote? I believe that's rooted in colonial law, not constitutional law. Well, if that's the case, and there's nothing that, um, <laughs> you guys will be like, what, Layla? But really, honestly, and I just kind of scrolled through the um, first 11 amendments, if that's the case, wouldn't those amendments help us by not having all of the other ones? If, if nothing takes away our citizenship, and none of those things can happen. And slavery is abolished. Um, it's not legalized. How could really interpreting those first, especially the Bill of Rights, harm us? Mm-hmm. Besides racism and tyranny of the majority implementing slavery again, which is scary in itself. Um, no, I don't think that you're off base. Um, you know, because take the 13th, for example. Uh, Venezuela through a UN process, and we reported on this, this has been a couple of years, called out the United States in one of these peer review processes that go on at the UN and called them out for still practicing slavery. Yes, that's the impact new abolitionist radio has been having on this discussion through these years. And Venezuela actually said that they should abolish the 13th Amendment, not just remove the exception clause. So, no, you're not crazy or or out of the box in, in thinking that. Um, I can see that we could have a functioning society with amendments 1 through 10, 
but I would be concerned about the citizenship status. I do think that needs to be defined um, unless we're talking about we want a one world government, you know what I'm saying? But no, I don't think you're out of the box on, on, on what you're, what you're saying. Okay. But with Roy Moore, a person asked me though, they was like, well, what do you think that this Doug Jones guy going to do for black people? And I was like, that's a good question. I can't answer that question. And that's the question that needed. No, not a question that needs to be put to him, but the people who elected him need to put the demands on him of what they want from him, you know, in terms of national legislation and what have you. But Roy Moore wouldn't have done anything for black people. He would have been down for doing stuff to black people and it wouldn't have been positive. So that, that, I hope that wasn't too far off, but that just came to my mind in discussing, you know, how dangerous this man was or is still. It struck me from reading his own words and knowing that he at one point was a judge that he doesn't know his behind from a hole in the ground. What he's saying is making no damn sense whatsoever. It's more cold words than legal discussion. And especially when he had to say at the end, if you understand the incorporation doctrine used by the courts and what it means, you'd understand what I'm talking about. He alludes more than anything else. It's a lot of alluding to what he's really talking about, and we all know what he's really talking about. And now how the 14th Amendment could affect anything within the first bill, your Bill of Rights, which is your first 10 amendments, I don't understand. First being freedom of speech, second right to bear arms, third quartering uh, no quartering of soldiers uh, fourth be you know, protection against illegal searches and seizures uh, five is rights of persons accused of crimes uh, six is rights of persons on trial for crimes then you would have seven is your jury trials and civil cases eight is limitation on bail and punishments nine is uh, rights kept by the people and ten is powers kept by the state or the people so I don't see how the 14th amendment which affects citizenship affects any of this other than really defining it a little further than it already was. Those born here in this nature, in this country uh, would be citizens. So yeah, I just think he's talking out his ass and it's amazing when it, excuse my language, that a judge doesn't know what the hell he's talking about when it comes to the Constitution. So he's making things up with his Christian conservative ideals at the forefront. It's white nationalist ideals. being based in racist white supremacy ideals. Right, right, I agree. Um, We got a caller. Um, This is uh, one of our Black Talk Radio family members, foundational radio host, Brother Jerry. Brother Jerry, did you have something you wanted to add to the conversation or a question you would like to ask? Well, I just had a question, and thank you for taking my call, Scotty. Uh, greetings to all of the hosts. Peace. <clears throat> my only, my only question is, is that uh, I've been, I've been going over this Constitution and and what would actually uh, ratify it. Can we, can we think in the terms? And and this is just a, a off the cuff uh, thought that I had. Are these people telling us things that we should
should already know as far as like uh, the brothers on melanated roots always go about talking about the United States is in debt. When you in debt, you don't use the Constitution. And then we hear uh, Donald Trump and a bunch of his cronies, whether it was uh, Rod Moore or some of the other people that's been kicked off and some of the people that's still on. They say things that we think is so far-fetched, but when we throw the Constitution out the window, all of these things are being played out. So should we stop thinking in the mind frame of using the Constitution? And I just wanted to ask y'all that from an abolitionist point of view. Thank you for taking my call again. Yes, sir. Well, thank you for posing the question. Um, before I answer, Max, Sister Layla, did y'all want to take a stab at that? Yes. A country, a nation needs a framework. In order to be a nation, it's got to have some sort of framework. And for us, that is the Constitution. Most nations have some form of Constitution. It really affects the way that nation thinks collectively over time by setting out these uh, agreed-upon rules and regulations and rights and no rights thereof. Uh, and I believe that all nations need that type of a framework. We have a pretty decent constitution, as constitutions go, and it's, uh historically comes from Native Americans' constitution. Uh, I don't know as much about that as I'd like to, but just a little bit. Iroquois. In any case, Iroquois? Okay, from the Iroquois. But uh, it's a pretty good constitution. It has one or two small flaws, but that one little small flaw is enough to change every damn thing. Just by putting an accept into the 13th Amendment, it made all the difference in the world, like sorcery. That's why they call it spelling. Uh, the alternative to not having some kind of legal framework to work within and to have expectations from is complete chaos. Uh, open warfare, uh, you know, just the whole I mean, a lawless land. Sister Layla, any thoughts? Um, <laughs> see, I listen to Sovereign Moors too much. And they talk about this. And they talk about the Constitution and we're not supposed to have to get a driver's license and we're not supposed to have to do all these things that we have to do and they only believe in the first ten amendments and the rest of them are crap. It is really interesting to me how these far, far left of the black community and the far, far right of the white community has so much in common that they agree on. <laughs> um, the messages come from the same people. My my response would be similar to that. A maxis. Um, the federal, and remember, each state has its own constitution as well. So that's why we spent 50 weeks examining all 50 state constitutions to look at the language. Now, that piece of paper called the U.S. Constitution is supposed to be the supreme law of the land. It trumps even the state constitutions, okay? So if that's the supreme law of the land, then it's the law. Now, the law don't mean nothing. It's just a piece of paper if there's no enforcement behind it. So, if you if you um if you try to do something that goes outside of those parameters, let's say I'm going to start my own nation 
here in Gaston County in this unincorporated area. Well, I better have the force of arms to be able to defend my new country that I just created or nation or sovereign space that I just created because I'm in the jurisdiction of this corporation, this entity called USA Inc. Um, then they, you know, they had a final say and let's not fool ourselves in thinking that we have the firepower to meet their firepower. Okay, so the law is backed up by the gun. That's why they call slave catchers law enforcers. And that is why the primary law that they enforce is the 13th Amendment. Okay, slavery as punishment for crime. That's why I call them slave catchers. And and so, but just really, I think Max said it best. Every nation that I know of on the face of this planet has a constitution. We just saw Zimbabwe go through a little, let's just call it a regime change or, or whatever language, a change in government. And they made sure that, hey, we got to make sure we go by the Zimbabwe in constitution and, and make this legal and make it legit. So Max is correct. Every civilized nation, well, so-called civilized nation, has that framework, those set of supreme laws that post to Trump everything. But Max is correct in saying that without that, it would be total anarchy, man. We could just do, it'll be back in the days of the wild, wild west when, you know, these settlers just started conquering land and territory and, and what have you. So, so, so I have to go with what Max said. You know, it's going to be total anarchy if we don't have, as a nation, agreed upon set of of laws. How are we going to live together? Yeah, yeah, so the problem is, though, is in lack of enforcement of the Constitution, especially Amendments 1 through 10, and strict enforcement of the 13th, which legalized slavery. I agree. I want to say this, too. When we first started off, I I said that the black vote, 13% voted for more. That's incorrect. I think it was 3% because 97% of, and I don't know about these exit polls. Those are not as scientific as we might think, but based on the exit polls, 97% black women voted for more, and black men were right there side by side. Not more for um, Doug, whatever his last name, and 90-something percent of black men did. I also agree with you guys. The scary part about it is when a Moore, a Roy Moore says that he wants to um, just deal with the Bill of Rights. I think that's what the first ten amendments are called. Then what he's really saying is he wants states to have almost all control over all other policies and laws. And with people like him in places like Alabama, that's very scary. Darren Tootin it is. <laughs> We've already heard people. Uh, like the radio show hosts out in uh, Iowa talk about bringing using the 13th Amendment against immigrants and turning them into slaves. Remember that one? That was just recently. And this guy was one of the leading Republican spokespeople, even the keynote speaker at their uh, Freedom something or another event. You know, they love to call it freedom when they talk about slavery. Now, <laughs> Max, Max. Now, yes, sir. let's also bring up on the back end of that that uh, great question by Brother Jerry. 
is what Brother Youssef reported to us last week about a court ruling that the GEO group, a private prison enslaver, was in violation of the Constitution and that they have to pay these people. These people have not been convicted of crimes per the 13th Amendment, so you can't pay them slave wages to run your prison. So that that again that that's why I you know I I kind of shy away from those conversations about eliminating the Constitution or 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 things like that. But I I thought you know that's kind of relevant that story that Yusef called in and and reported us reported to us about how the immigrants used the Constitution to take these people to court and won. You know, it's still in yes. the appeals process, but as it stands right now, they won. Yes. That's uh, one of the tools that we've been using heavily is the Constitution, pointing out this constitutional crisis of the Fourth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, the Eighth Amendment, Thirteenth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, the Fifteenth Amendment. I, I mean, we're just showing clearly how these things are being violated. And then it leads into a problem, which you just mentioned a little while ago, where it's only worth something if there's people willing to put their lives on the line to make sure that it's enforced, that you have these rights and representations. Uh, But alas, that's not what we have today. We have people who are swearing oaths to documents they've never read uh, and they don't understand. And they're swearing oaths to ideals in their hearts and minds, but with their mouth, they're speaking about the Constitution. And I just think that is shameful. I mean, there should be no circumstance where any policeman stops you and is not aware of every single amendment that you have, or at least have a book in his damn pocket that he could pull out and go, hmm, 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment. I mean, you you need to have those things because that's what you're out there protecting. That's what you swore an oath to defend. That's why people went to war and died for those constitutional rights, including the right to vote. Now, Malcolm X, I'll just add this, Malcolm X was correct and there are those who are following in his footsteps and have been going outside of the Constitution and pressing human rights. Now, I think I may have pointed out on a program, I may have talked about this last night, I'm not sure, but um, man, I just lost my train of thought. What was I saying, Max? Malcolm, Malcolm X in uh, human yes. rights, human rights. He is right. right. You use every tool available. You don't. He. What did Malcolm X say? Freedom by any means necessary. If it come through the Constitution, it come through the Constitution. If it come through the dec- the UN Declaration of Human Rights, it comes through the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Every option should be on the table. And in my opinion, including bearing arms to enforce the Constitution like it's supposed to be, because Max is absolutely correct, is that we don't have enough people who are willing to put their lives on the line for what that Constitution embodies, They, except for the 13th Amendment. These slave catchers don't mind putting their lives on the line to put somebody into slavery, but when it comes to that Bill of Rights, oh, it might as well not exist in their mind based off their record. 
Absolutely. You know, Scotty, this is going to lead into another story. and Let's take a break. It's a 9 o'clock hour. We'll take a break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the Coca-Cola slavery plantation that's going on. And then we'll also run into the stories regarding the overseers and slave catchers and what they've been doing lately. Uh, so when we hear statements like, when we had slavery, I'm like, when we had? What do you mean had? It's still here. And we'll show you how that works. So you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network.com. We're talking about modern day slavery and human trafficking. We'll be right back after these messages. Podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, Sister Leda, do you have uh, access to be able to pull up a page, possible? Um, yes. What page do you want me to pull up? The one, the story about the Coca-Cola company using slave labor now from the SOAR organization, S-O-A-R, in there. I'm having some internet. Oh, I read that. Yes. yes. I, and my internet is not picking up, sir. Did you need me to pick that up? Uh, yeah, if you could open that up and kind of read some of it for the people. And uh, if you're able to open it up, let me know. In the meantime, I'll give it like I'm an not, introduction. My internet is, yeah, my internet is not letting me pick Okay, Scotty, I, can you get it? Yes, I'm. Um, I'm. Um, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to get to. Oh, I got. I think I got it, but it's, it's yeah, freezing I'm, up on me. Okay, I got it. You got it. <laughs> well, I, I will <laughs> make sure I keep the thread. The Wall Street Journal, man, or the Washington Post, man, are painting behind. In any case, we have been keeping an eye on these organizations now that have been using jail labor, not prison labor, jail labor, uh, pretrial things and sending them to these different places to work for free on full-time jobs and even live on these facilities. And these are for-profit commercial industries like the chicken farms that we've discussed and that were brought to our awareness through uh, Brother um, Otis Griffin uh, about a month ago. So now it's even gotten worse, and I'm afraid it may be more than this. Apparently, Coca-Cola is involved in this free labor deal as well. Uh, This is a story that comes out of the Washington Post, and it says, Retired Oklahoma Judge Thomas Lindreth is hailed as a hero of criminal justice reform. He started the first rural drug court in the nation and has reaped awards for sending defendants to treatment rather than prison. Sounds nice, doesn't it? But Lindreth is also involved in a more sinister byproduct of criminal justice reform. Lindreth started his own rehab work camp where defendants must work full-time for free at a Coca-Cola bottling plant and other companies under threat of prison. They are required to say they're unemployed and to turn over their food stamps to the program, which state regulators say is a fraud. Some of them even work on Landreth's yard for free. And uh, this article, it, it says... It is the one of the guys says it's the worst experience of my life," said Cody Evans, a former participant at Southern Oklahoma Addiction Recovery, also known as SOAR. I'd rather go to prison. 
It's the latest discovery in an ongoing investigation by Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting into rehab programs across the country that are little more than lucrative work camps for private industry. Coca-Cola prohibits forced labor at its independent bottling plants. In response to Reveal's reporting, the Ada Coca-Cola Bottling Company said it would suspend use of the program. We take the concerns that have been raised seriously, the company said in the statement. We have participated in the SOAR program because of the good we have seen it can do for people in our community and are hopeful we can work with SOAR to revise the terms of the program. The involvement of one of Oklahoma's most celebrated judges exposes just how pervasive this type of rehab model has become, implicating major corporations, powerful politicians, and even those whose job is to uphold the law. And it lays bare a litany of ethical and legal problems that can arise in the process, included, including in programs started with the best of intentions. You can read the rest of this story at New Abolitionist Radio uh, on Facebook page and also at the uh, community.blacktalkradionetwork. But I, I want to open it up now for you guys to go ahead and add whatever you want to add to it. It, <laughs> you know what, and, and I, I want to say that when I read lower, um, when I read down further on the article, Coca-Cola was even giving themselves a um, a way so that they could still work with this program. Yes. They like this program. So they're looking at the bottom line. And anytime you allow any kind of inhumanity, I don't care how much you try to legalize it, or regulate it, because that's what the 13th Amendment tries to do. It tries to regulate slavery. It tries yes. to regulate something that is inhumane. You can expect worse than what we're seeing at the Coca-Cola bottling plant. Basically, and this judge is basically probably going to say, well, I didn't get any money, so I didn't do anything criminal. Because buying and selling people or trading them is not immoral. It's not illegal. And it doesn't seem like this article, or the article I read, um, I think which is the same article, it doesn't seem like they have, they're looking at any kind of legal issues with slavery. And now they're even saying, you don't even have to be convicted, like you guys always say when you find these. You can go, they can use this with diversion, they can use this with substance abuse treatment. Slavery is legal, so it allows a loophole in many other things. And that's the way of American business. Why would we expect anything different? One of the one of the things that, and I agree with everything she just said, but one of the things that stood out to me was in the very first sentence: "Retired Oklahoma Judge Thomas Landriff is hailed as a hero of criminal justice reform." How many times have we said on this very program? that we are not reformists. We are, you cannot reform slavery. You have to abolish it. So this is what reformists look like, okay? This is what reformists of slavery are talking about. So, you know, I made a post earlier today. I'm trying to get ahead of the, ahead of the 2020 election. If the Democrats nominate a person like Kamala Harris who has spent an entire career on the wrong side 
of slavery in this country as a lifelong prosecutor who once talked about throwing parents in jail over school truancy of their children, who argued whose office, even if she didn't do it personally, her name, she was the California Attorney General, and her office argued at the Supreme Court when they were saying, hey, California, you're violating, what is it, the cruel and unusual punishment? Is that the Eighth Amendment? I'm not sure. Yes, it is. Yes. It is. Okay, this is what the Supreme Court said. Your overcrowding is a violation of the Eighth Amendment. And you have to do something to ease overcrowding. Preferably, let these low-level offenders, non-violent so-called drug offenders go. What did they? What did the state of California, through Kamala Harris's office, argue? Well, if we do that, we will deplete California as a cheap labor pool. Guess who's fighting them fires, which I think is one of the stories we might get to. Guess who's fighting those fires in California right now? Prison slaves are fighting those fires. And now that she has gotten a Senate seat, she is trying to act like she's some kind of criminal justice reformer. Again, you cannot reform slavery. That's what the 13th Amendment attempted to do. And and I like the way Layla put it. It regulated slavery. It didn't abolish slavery. But this is what reformism looks like. And and I just have to tell tell people, don't fall for the tricks, okay? We don't want reform as as a, a slavery abolitionist movement. We know abolition is the answer, not reform. And, you know, these pretend Christians swear up and go- up and down that they're doing it for the best interest of the people involved. Reading further down the story, you'll see that they have this thing where there's like 45 men living on site. They're working at the Coca-Cola plant. They're working for a car wash, which is owned by one of the board members. They're working in several other uh, for-profit industries that have direct financial connections to the board members. And if they work for six months straight with no pay, they'll get a $500 stipend, allegedly. Uh, and it's, it's just it's, it's just so illegal on every single level. But it sounds like the slavers of the 1800s. You know, we feed our slaves good. Yeah. They's happy slaves. You ain't got to worry about them. They got good teeth and everything. <laughs> That's yeah. how they sound. Hey, and and, <laughs> and just, just to add to what I was saying, you know, this so-called a jobs program or jobs training they're using that as a cover for slavery because it was just this year Kamala Harris visited a chinchilla I may be saying it wrong but she visited a women's prison in California in this prison they sew American flags so Colin Kaepernick you got another reason okay to kneel and and to point out that flag and what did she say she held that as a jobs training program now I live in the southeastern part of the United States there used to be about five or six textile mills here just in the little area of Mount Holly but in Gaston County everybody was working at the textile mills now those flags and those textiles, because actually you just had two, 
uh, five prisoners here in North Carolina tried to escape from a prison that was doing textiles. And so Kamala Harris talking about, oh, this is, they're sewing these flags. This is a great skills training program. Now I ask you, when these women get out of prison, where are they going to go find a job sewing some freaking American flags? Don't fall for this reformism crap, people. I agree. Kamala Harris upheld the um, um, the indeterminate sentences in the shoe. She fought for to keep them in the shoe. Mm-mm-mm. So she's not a good one. She upheld to have people in a box the size of a bathroom for 40 years. And most of the Africans, the new African people that were in those boxes, weren't there because of violence. They were there because of political reasons. And they basically said their political views were something they didn't want on general population. So they put them right. in a bathroom and she upheld that. Right. So this goes to what we were speaking about. And I want to share a comment from Otis in the chat room. But but again, this goes to speaking about some of the things that were brought up earlier about the turnout for voting. I don't want you voting if you ain't got a political education, if you don't know who you're voting for. I don't want you voting because you go you liable to put another slaver like like uh, um, Donald Trump in office and just cause they got a D behind their name okay but Otis says I keep repeating judges and politicians and their families are the main proponents of these slave ventures and I was yes. just I was thinking yeah this dude claiming that he retired he ain't not getting any money but I would like to see what his stock portfolio looks like and if he has any Coca-Cola stock <laughs> but you know, I, I don't know if that that forty five men free labor would increase the stocks in Coca Cola, but it certainly would make that local dis, uh, dispensary or manufacturing place save a lot of money. They they're probably happy at that local level. It, it wouldn't matter if they're making a lot. In my opinion, Max, it doesn't matter if it's making a significant difference or not, and I would not doubt. If there were other locations around the nation that they doing the very same thing and we just don't know about it like we didn't know about this until somebody reported on it. But regardless, if it's adding value to their stock or not, I would say they wouldn't be doing it in the first place if it didn't add value to them as a company and any company that is using prison slave labor, anybody who owns that stock is part and parcel to that crime. Well, I agree with you. I think we need a rapid response, um, um, like a guide, not a guide, but a reference guide, where we have people throughout dispatch throughout the nation that um, as soon as these people get caught up doing these things, we send them send out press releases and have them out there talking about slavery, abolish the 13th in slavery, and that's on every level. I like what um, Marissa did with the San, I think it's the Santa Barbara Prison Network, Prison Solidarity. When she went out there, when she heard about the fires, she went out there and she she, went, she highlighted the fact that the firefighters were making a dollar an hour and two dollars a day. Um, so maximum they could make is probably ten dollars a day, risking their lives um, fighting fires. So you're basically saying that now that I have, because these are people that are in jail, in prison for for drugs. These are your most low-level offenders. You're you're risking their lives, and you're not giving them compensation. 
And then you have these women who have children, and they go home with no money, nothing to start their life off with but $200 gate money. It's, un- it's, 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 un- it's immoral what we're doing and just having people out there to highlight these things also I think will mobilize our base and really get people kind of revved up to really push this fight to abolish the 13th. You know, with all that you were just mentioning, if you get the, if you can, at the top of the New Abolitionist Radio Facebook page, there's the story about the firefighters and the community that's rallying behind them in Santa Barbara in solidarity with them and really brings out uh, what's going on over there. If you want to continue with that, I, I need to take about two minutes. So you and Scotty can hold it down? Yes, I'll go ahead and read that now, Scotty. Oh, all right. I'm pulling it up right now. I got internet now. Santa Barbara, could the brave firefighter who risked life and limb to save your home have been paid only $1 per hour to do it? Up and down the state of California, on the front lines of deadly wildfires, thousands of prison inmates employed through the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation's California Conservation Corps program face the blazing heat and choking smoke for, on average, $2 per day plus a dollar per hour of work. As Southern California faces a new wave of inferno, at least one community gathered for a rally to call attention to these overlooked firefighters and to ask that they be paid a living wage. About 30 community members gathered with signs and banners for the rallies, which took place in downtown Santa Barbara, California, at 5 p.m. on Friday, December 8th, at the corner of State Street and Anapamu Street, I believe. While the Santa Barbara Prison Solidarity Network expresses support for everyone doing their part in this trying time, especially emergency personnel, volunteers, and organizers throughout our communities protecting and supporting one another, many people are aware of these population work of this population working tirelessly for wages far below what in the free world outside of prison is considered a legal minimum wage. Many of these firefighters have suffered injuries and and many have lost their lives. It's time they were recognized and honored with a decent reward for backbreaking and life-threatening work. And it goes on to talk about, I believe there's about 1,000, 1,972 of these inmates and Southern California camps, that's Northern and Southern California um, camps have about 1,031. So there's a lot of people and it goes on to talk about the exemption in the 13th Amendment which abolished chattel slavery in the United States, made infamous in the acclaimed 2016 documentary, 13th. There is no legal requirement that incarcerated people be paid wages for their work. Santa Barbara Prison Solidarity Network has supported recent efforts by prisoners across the country to demand an end to what is being called prison slavery. Um, I really salute Marissa for going out there. She did it. It was rapid. She responded. She mobilized people and had a great turnout. Salute, Melissa. Salute to you. And and we need more people doing similar things to bring attention to the plight of these victims of 13th Amendment slavery. And I'm so happy that they pointed out the slavery exception clause in this article uh, because I remember doing the 150th anniversary of the 13th and they had a big party in Washington DC and all these writers were writing these articles but they just did not see fit to publish the entire 47 words in their articles about the exception clause in the 13th amendment which made slavery legal through the prison so anytime I see a writer point that out 
I, I got to salute them and say job well done. I agree. Same I agree. here. Same here. And, you know, I, I feel some kind of way about that particular industry, like where uh, the incarcerated citizens are fighting fires. I'm actually, in a way, feeling like, you know, it's something if they were given the choice to do and paid a relative salary, they would choose it from inside the prison. Like, you know, I only got six months to get out. You're going to give me six, uh, take six months off my time. If I go fight these fires out here in California and you'll pay me, I don't know, $12 an hour, or $15 an hour, or whatever it is. And you'll take whatever amount you need to take out for my fines, my fees. As long as you're not, you know, taking everything away from them. I kind of see where that would be an option. I wouldn't be complaining about it. You I know- would be complaining when McDonald's is serving me hamburgers that was uh, processed by prisoners. I would be complaining when Starbucks is giving me coffee that was, uh, you know, partially made possible through prison slave labor. Those are the issues that I would have. You know, also, I um, yeah, I, I agree as well. But just think about this. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about felony disenfranchisement. So, you know, we're pretty much aware um, of how it disenfranchises voters, okay? But also, how many of these firefighters out of the prisons, once they complete their stint in slavery, will be given an opportunity to get a job as a firefighter? Because I remember reading an article that on average, firefighters in California might make 100000 a year or more. And so when we're talking about felony disenfranchisement, we're also talking about employment and not just voting. And, and just you, you would think, hey, if I got the, if these were really, truly jobs programs and about training them in a skill or a trade that they can then get out and get a job. Well, that goes out the window when we look at how felons are often passed over for employment. Hey, I need to give a message. Just got in from Krista Roundtree. She says, greeting comrades, really enjoying the program tonight. And uh, Krista Roundtree is one of the lead organizers behind the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights uh, Coalition. Shout out to hey, you, Crystal. And I know Sister Crystal has been um, doing some work with the um, human rights. I joined their actual um, site, and 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 she's going in there where where these organizations have come in, come together. I want to say it's the Human Rights Coalition, but it's nationwide. It's even worldwide. It's global where these different organizations have come together um, to fight on human rights issues. And Crystal is there, and she's amplifying the issue of the Thirteenth Amendment. Um, to ensure that this is acknowledged as a human rights violation. When I when I when I listen in or I read about stuff like that, it it gives me chills because it reminds me of the work that Malcolm X was doing, and that he was unable to fulfill. And so just seeing that we're pushing a multi pronged attacks and and it really causes me. And sometimes this is when I bad act on the internet. It causes me great anguish when people um, don't agree with the tactics and they try to sway us to go towards their tactics when we're doing a multi-pronged attack. Right. And if anybody knows what a multi 
You know what I'm saying? It, yes. it just doesn't make any sense that, that we're being strategic, and yet it's our people that are most vocal about our strategy. I and would so, agree with you, um, Sister Layla. Shout out to Crystal. Yeah, I, I, would, me, I was saying I agree with you totally, and that's what I was alluding to earlier, that we have people walking in the footsteps of Malcolm X. So let's use the U.N. Declaration of Human Rights. Let's use the United States Constitution. Let's use the state constitution where applicable. So like Malcolm X said, by any means necessary. Yeah, she uh, spoke. I remember we had one of the meetings with the uh, coalition and they came on the Human Rights Network and said that we're going to have the first of our congressional hearings on the 13th Amendment within 13 months. That's our pledge. And they meant it. <laughs> I believe the one they said it. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that happening. I'm prepared to testify if necessary. And I want to give a inspiring. shout out. Go ahead, say again. No, I'll say that's inspiring. Yes, it is indeed inspiring. And the timing is perfect because now is the time for it. We've been building up and building up to it. If we can get these congressional hearings on the 13th Amendment and the world gets to hear the testimony, gets to see the evidence right along with Congress and the Senate, I think that will change everything all over. Because other nations were like, you know what? They're doing the same damn thing right here because they are. You know, they haven't been doing it with every nation, but some nations now are incorporating it, like Brazil, what with some of the most notorious prisons on earth now have for-profit private prisons. Imagine that combination, the most notorious prisons on earth for profit. And Max, don't forget Uganda, where I reported last week that they have a half a billion a year cotton industry with cotton being picked by Ugandan prisons, prisoners. Right, right. And Haiti is the worst that I've ever seen visually. There may be worse, but the worst I've ever seen on a video uh, is the story of what's happening in Haiti, thanks to the GEO group, right, right after the hurricane. Now they have these so-called officials who are literally just grabbing people off the street to fill these prisons. And there's, there's testimony from men inside who are starving and dying, talking about they have been in there six, seven years and never even once seen a lawyer, not even once. They're just putting bodies in these cells in Haiti. In, in Haiti. It's just, it's just tragic. It's the equivalent of what you're seeing in Libya, you know, but one is the illegal slavery and the other is the legal slavery. It's still slavery. Right, right. And so I want to give a shout out to the Free Alabama Movement and everybody in Alabama that pulled this sucker punch out of nowhere and probably nowhere. are completely responsible for pushing the vote in favor of Jones. Even Breitbart had to say something about what's going on out there. There was like Breitbart reported on how the Soros army has been registering felons, a reference to billionaire progressive activist George Soros. His Open Society Foundations contributed to the efforts of multiple activist groups in registering voters from the ranks of former Alabama prisoners. More linking to an AL.com story on the issue tweeted, breaking Democratic operatives in Alabama are registering thousands of felons all across the state in an effort to swing the U.S. election to Doug Jones. Well, let me tell you something. They didn't do it in an effort. They got it done. <laughs> yeah, and, and, <laughs> so, and so let's not forget, though, now, Breitbart, right-wing rag. I hope Breitbart is burning in hell, Andrew Breitbart, you piece of trash. But <laughs> but um, that's his paper. 
Now, who manages that publication? Now, I shouldn't say paper, but outlet, news outlet. Who manages that proper right-wing propaganda outlet? One, Steve Bannon. Who did Steve Bannon endorse in the Alabama Senate uh, uh, race? Roy Moore. Now, they got some nerve. Again, I would like to talk to whoever wrote this article, okay? Let me read this part. Benna Hannibal Rison, a founder of the FAM, talking about Free Alabama Movement, has peddled conspiracy theories about the 13th Amendment, which allows for involuntary servitude as a, quote, punishment for crime whereof the party have been duly convicted. Look, you just wrote a portion of the 13th Amendment. How is that a conspiracy theory? That's a fact. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> Did you notice how they left the word slavery out and instead only said involuntary servitude? Yes, yes. They don't say just involuntary. It starts with slavery. They just left that out. But you, you want to gaslight our abolitionist brother and say, oh, he's peddling conspiracy theories. No, dude, we got nothing but facts for your ass. Yes. <laughs> when I saw that earlier... I, I just fell out. I was like, we have we have braver to whatever these people call themselves, Bannon and his idiots. They have they are paying close attention to the abolitionist movement. And yes. I I wanted to tag you, Mac. I I was like, let me. I was like, no, I'm not going to tag you because I already know he's going to see it. And when you highlighted that, I was like, I could just feel it. We are on to something. Do not let it. This is the this is your voice. I heard. Don't let anyone sway us. This is it. We're on the right path. And I believe that, sir. We're going the right way. And it's, it's demonstrating that our enemies know about us. And they know that we're a threat. Exactly. Yeah, I don't now think they can get a threat like this to white supremacy and the system of white supremacy in, since the abolition movement of the 1800s. That's the closest thing I could see. To the, it's duplicating that. We are literally poised in a position where we could take it down if we just don't let another exception clause slip past our eye shot. Well, I, yes, I certainly agree with Sister Layla's assessment that our enemies are paying attention and they know we have solid ground to stand on or they wouldn't be lying to their readers and say, oh, this is a conspiracy theory. <laughs> I need that yeah. on tape. That need to be my, my ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again, Scotty. <laughs> this is oh. a conspiracy theory. <laughs> awesome, man. Awesome. I feel good about that. I do. I mean, we got to feel good about the things that we're accomplishing collectively. And it's not just you or I. It's because this whole perspective is taking root. People start to understand and work with it. And, and it's bearing fruit. We're seeing lawsuits that are coming uh, to fruition, RICO charges that are coming to fruition, people getting time. Like we just got an officer who got 20 freaking years in prison for killing a black man. Uh, Slager just went 20 years for killing uh, Walter Scott. So we're seeing some of the fruits of these labors, including the Innocence Project and the record number of people that they're bringing out of these prisons in every avenue from divestment to literally getting people out of these prisons and jail cells to organizing 
uh, work strikes across the nation, the food is coming out. Yeah, right? and and also the cryptocurrency technologists who are say I've know I know now about two different separate efforts to bail people out of jail using cryptocurrency. But Max, so like Sister Layla was saying, this is a multi-pronged attack. There's no either or. It's by any means necessary, baby. And but before we go to break, um, let's take a call, Max. Uh, we have Brother Jerry wants to chime back in. Okay. Welcome back to the program, Brother Jerry. Oh man, I've been I've been holding my uh I've been holding my water, man, trying not to interrupt y'all. But uh really enjoying the show. I came in late, so I hope I'm not asking a question that y'all already discussed. Um up here where I'm well down here where I'm from, I'm from uh Chattanooga, Tennessee. Up in Knoxville we just had this little uh this little white boy come on and say that he was being bullied and then we turn out to find out that his mother has been uh, teaching racism to him so none of the details as they are normally uh, shown are coming out but it was so many people uh, reaching out to this this young white uh, boy and I'm wondering uh, we've seen young black boys and young black girls go to jail and prison for things a lot less than this. I wanted to know from an abolitionist standpoint, what do y'all think about this story and how do y'all think it will turn out? Thank you again for taking my call. Yes, sir. Uh, Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen. And he's speaking of that young man who had the bullying video and his mom has the Confederate flags and then they said that he um, was calling kids the N-word at school. His dad is an incarcerated Nazi. Speaking of that kid, right? Yes. Am I on the right youth? Um, I'm going to be honest. I didn't dig deep enough in the story. I've seen all of the different rebuttals and different things. I never dug deep enough in the story to fact check any of those things. Like, I don't know where his dad is. I haven't seen a video or the witnesses saying he was using the N-word. Um, I don't know if he was bullied. So I think he used GoFundMe, he went viral, and now he has to deal with the backlash. I have seen the pictures of his mom with the Confederate flag. So I know that there's issues there. But um, this is not on a scale of 1 to 10. This, Even though for some reason it's garnering a lot of attention, that's not a big attention grabber for me. It's a distraction, in my opinion. And only because um, we're dealing with um, people that I felt good about who in Alabama, those prisoners, who um, saw that they did a win and those um, returning citizens who had that great win in Alabama, I do understand that probably what's going on with this little kid's family is the same thing that made all those white people vote for more, right? Right. Um, They like slavery. They don't have an issue with it. But that's just my take. I would have to go with what Sister Layla said um, before she said it. That's the word that popped into my mind. A distraction. Now, like Brother Jerry mentioned, with all of these young black boys and girls being brutalized by slave catchers, being raped in these detention facilities, and and even in the prisons, 900 teen boys filed a class action lawsuit over being raped in prison. And 60% 
of all prison rape is done by guards and staff. Okay, now, so you had the reason this story went viral from what I understand about it is because you had a couple of quote unquote hip hop artists take an interest in the story and promoting it. But when did these hip hop artists promote any of these stories about 900 teen boys being raped? and suing the state of Michigan or that black girl who was body slammed by a slave catcher in, in South Carolina. Y'all remember that? Okay. When, when did these people become involved and make those stories go viral or promoted a fundraiser for them? Okay. So that, that's, I, I agree with sister Layla, a distraction. Well, I'll, I'll, direct you to an article by uh, Ariel Eniko Newton. She's the senior editor of Race Bader, an organizer within the movement for Black Lives. She's the founder of Black Giving Fund. She's the host of Race Baiting, the first Race Bader podcast, and she's the head girl of Ravenclaw. This is her bio. She's unapologetically mermaid, abolitionist, and radical militant freedom fighter. And she wrote an article uh, that is titled Empathy is for white kids, Keaton Jones, and the black children we ignore for white supremacists. So you could check that out. I thought it was pretty interesting. The one thing that I wanted to add on to all of that is that I seen people were very surprised about the amount of money that was instantly raised in support of this child. I believe it was like $60,000. But we have to remember, black wealth is only representative of a, a very small fraction of American wealth. So you shouldn't be surprised that they can raise 50 or 60 or even a million dollars. Like they raised for Darren Wilson. They raised a million dollars for Darren Wilson. Right. We just don't have that type of fiscal framework to be able to do those things. So uh, that, for me, was not surprising. Expect it to happen over and over again, like he said. Dan uh, Wilson and so many others, the same thing. Now, um, there are, oh yeah, we do have to take our break, <laughs> take our last break. Yes. And just to let you know, Max, if we need to go over, uh, we do have some extra time tonight. Unfortunately, the ladies who host Mind, Body, and Spirit are both feeling under the weather and they canceled earlier today. So let's take our break and then we'll come back and jump to these stories. All right, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network with Max Parthas, Scotty Reed, and Leila Aziz. We'll be right back after these messages. Since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Uh, 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 
Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio, uh, right here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. I know we got we're short on time. We still got three segments to do. No, Max, and, we're, uh, we're, we're not we're not short on time. We got a little extra time. I, I don't want anybody to feel okay. like we got to rush. But before we do, let let me just revisit what I said before the break. I don't want it to. I don't want people to take away from my comments that I'm unempathetic to a child, regardless of their skin color or classification in this racist system. That is not how I am. Uh, But I will point, I'm just pointing out, like others have pointed out, like Max just said, you know, the sister who wrote that article about it is that, you know, some of us seem to be more concerned about being friends to people who historically are not our friends and, you know, in promoting this story, bullying is a serious issue. I've covered a couple of stories, um, you know, and interviewed some parents, black parents whose children were being bullied in school. Um, you just had a woman in Virginia who they tried to put into slavery, throw slap some charges on her because the school was ignoring the bullying of her black child. And she put a recorder in the child's backpack uh, to record what was going on because she said the school was acting like, oh, nobody's bullying her. So when they found the recorder, they tried to charge her with violation of wiretap laws and things of that nature. But according to Virginia state law, that's a one party state, okay, where only one party of the conversation has to give their permission to record. So they ended up dropping the charges. So, But my point is, I'm talking to black people now, is for these black celebrities to highlight that story when we have plenty of stories of little black children being bullied, not by just other children, but by the school systems themselves, and these people don't say anything. Right, Sister Layla, anything? I agree. Um, I've seen GoFundMe take off and different things take off um, based on the sensationalism, the amplification of how their algorithms work, and then other people just, it's interesting how these things work. But I do um, wish that we were more focused as a group. Um, What really got me was, Scotty, when you were talking about these young men who were raped in the prison, and I want to read more about that story um, because those are issues and some of the most horrific stories they had incarcerated. There was an I think it's in Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, this young handicapped boy that they incarcerated um, and how he was repeatedly raped and abused. And it just seems that just across the board, our prisons from our juvenile institutions to adults, they, um, they make worse people than who previously entered. And I think we should amplify that and really start to really talk about those things. I agree. Um, Looks like we have a call from area code 816. Um, 816, thank you for calling in to New Abolitionist Radio. Give us your name if you choose and share your thoughts with us tonight. Yes, this is Jeff uh, um, from Jaws of Justice Radio in Kansas hey, City. Greetings. What's happening, brother? How are you doing, Mac and, and Layla and Scotty? Uh, I'm glad to hear from all of you this evening. Um, I wanted to, you know, you were talking about the firefighter thing here a little while ago. 
And I recently did an interview with um, Matthew Hahn. Um, he was imprisoned out in California and was on one of these crews. And um, he wrote about it on his particular, um, what do you call it, a blog post uh, about fighting fires and stuff. So I, I, in that interview, I asked him about this whole issue of, of well, you know, some people will say, oh, this is this is public service, you know, for your crime or whatever, or slavery. And, you know, the thing that he, he said was that, you know, for him, as, as a prisoner, um, the conditions that he had in the camp were so much better than they were if he was behind bars in, in the penitentiary that he and the other people that he was with were quite willing to accept the um you know this this Risk. type of labor um and i i think the thing that that really got me when he started talking about hey they gave us much better food um because they they expected us to be in good shape um you know and conversely is is what happens behind the bars where they don't give you any food they they have a very strict number of calories and everything else that that are you know bordering on starvation for a lot of in a lot of places um they didn't have you know one of the things i i love that he said uh, there were no guard towers you know um when they had visits from family which um was difficult because they were out, you know, in the, the hinterlands, so to say. Um, it was in a picnic area, and they they were able to have food with their family and and you know touch each other and everything else. The things that are just totally different than they were within the prison, which is why so many of the prisoners in in the system um, worked real hard to try and get into this program. Um, you know, I. It's still slavery, but it's a, it, it's um, they're willing to accept it. it, it it's kind of like the the difference between the field slave and the the house slave. I guess I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I would say I would say Jeff but, that I do not blame any prisoner for wanting to participate, despite not being paid what they should be paid—a living wage or else it's slavery, or all the things that you just mentioned. But to me, that that tells me that California is ignoring human rights abuses inside the prison to provide an incentive for these prisoners to become this cheap labor pool that Kamala Harris was talking about California couldn't afford to lose. So no, I don't, I, I don't blame any prisoner. I blame the system. Right. I, I agree with you completely. Those human, uh, those things that human beings normally expect to get, which are now being treated as perks for prisoners. Uh, that, that's the way that they make them want to do what it is they're doing right now. You know, like you said, they could be in a jail or in a prison under some kind of brutal structure, uh, not eating anything and not doing anything, not being able to see their family and not and not and not. Or they could be out here risking their lives fighting fires, get to see your family because you're risking your life. 
and maybe make a dollar a day that you can put in commissary and, and, and have cigarettes or whatever it is you need, you know what I mean? Or socks. I understand where they're coming from on that. Same reason that my son worked for 13 cents an hour making uh, in the bakery in prison because it was the only way he was going to be able to call mommy and daddy was to earn that 13 cents an hour. So, yeah, yeah I'm not you know, blaming one, you. Another aspect of this that, that I asked him about and he, he talked about was the fact that not only, you know, was, were the conditions better, but they actually, you know, the, the guys that were in the camp with him, they all felt a, a sense of accomplishment that's, um, you know, for having done something good, you know, for people. And, and they were, you know, he talked about one fire that, that they worked in as they were going, you know, leaving the fire and stuff, the the neighborhood people were lined up along the road and cheering them and everything, not knowing that they were prisoners. But um, he said, you know, it's that sense of accomplishment and that, that sense of having done something good and just the opportunity for something like that is is something that's denied um, all those those people behind bars that um, they're not given something that that can uh, um, give them some some self worth. Right, and then so uh, I understand all the emotions that's involved in that, and they are learning a marketable skill. But then it goes back to what I was saying earlier about now what's the chances of them becoming firefighters once they get out of prison because again felony disenfranchisement not only affects the right to vote but the right to work yes in california the state of california will not hire them as firefighters um although the the u.s forest service will that's good to know yeah those are the the federal many that yeah, from what I understand, not many of them have gone to the U.S. Forest Service and, and worked for them. So, In the past year, or almost two years, I'm aware of two deaths of prisoners who died while fighting fires in California. <clears throat> and one was a male and one was a female. And I still wonder to this day what type of funeral they received, what type of compensation they received, what type of insurance was paid out, were they even insured at all, who collected the money for it. Those things go through my mind because more will die. It's just it's almost a given. And how will they die? As prisoners or firefighters, heroes? Well, see, that's the advantage of prison slavery is you don't have to pay disability. You don't that's have good. to provide those things. And I like Matthew Hahn is a really, really good brother. And Matthew, he, he talks about California's prison. And I call him a brother because um, he has elevated to a true understanding of humanity um he's a white guy who was he talks about the racial politics going on in the prisons, and he's very honest about what's going on and i'm going to say this i don't believe that teaching people a transferable skill and no sewing together a flag is not a transferable skill firefighting may be like how matthew's in the ibew now and getting those second chances i don't have a problem with that i have a problem with slavery I don't have a problem with restorative justice. I don't have a problem because a lot of those guys out there and the women, like you said, and for the reasons that Matthew gave, don't have a problem. They like fighting the fires because it's better than being in a box. It's better. You get better treatment. The food is better. Everything is just better there. But understanding that we're 
still not going to justify slavery. A house nigga had better food. So we understand that. Also, them being able to give back in that feeling because civic engagement is a best practice for lowering recidivism. So we're still in favor of that, too. So we're not saying take your whole fire program and just dismantle it. We're saying there needs to be safeguards. If a person dies, they have to have the same protection that a firefighter has for their family, for their children who aren't going to have mom or dad anymore. We're saying they have to have a livable wage. This money, even if it's kept for them when they release, they should have this money so they can begin their life again. And let's build on what's going on and do it without slavery. Pay them a decent wage. Pay them no less than minimum wage. I don't think we should ever have an excuse to undermine the American worker. Period, right. and that's what slavery in prison does. Right, I agree. Amen. Thanks for bringing that to uh, the table here in the conversation. Hey, that's Jeff. Appreciate it, brother. Thank you. Jeff, can you tell people how they can tune in to your show? Okay. Well, we uh, are on Monday mornings, and um, we're on KKFI. So, uh, if you're not in Kansas City area, um, you would listen on. Um, kkfi.org and you can listen to 9 o'clock central time on Monday mornings is Jaws of Justice Radio and we do have podcasts on on that same website um, kkfi.org you can go back and uh, check out what Matthew had to say Um, I've I've talked to him a couple times now and he really is um, like Sister Layla says, he, he's very um, articulate and very um, much into the humanity of, of the whole situation and, and understands it in ways that, that most people are not able to articulate it. So, well, Keep up the good work, and thanks again. His, yeah, his uh, thing I, I would say is his, um, you can find his, pot or his, um, what do you call it, blog, is Han Scratch. It's H-A-H-N Scratch. Um, You put that into the search engine and you'll find it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to check out the radio station too. It sounds like something I'm interested in listening to. Oh yeah, and you can find podcasts where I've been a guest on there before as well. It's a wonderful program that Jeff has there. Uh, Charles of Justice Um, Radio. Make sure that you check them out. Max, I know we, we, you know, again, we got a little extra time, but before we get to our regular segments and, and get ready to wrap it up, can we talk about those two slave catcher stories? Because, uh, you know, I'm into racially showcasing white victims of slavery because that seems to be the population that needs the most convincing that you are not safe. Okay, nobody's safe. The 13th Amendment introduced slavery for all. We know it disproportionately impacts uh, certain communities more than other. But when you're talking class lines, uh, poor white people are targeted for slavery as well. So I I definitely wanted to highlight those two stories. Yes, I, I want to do as well, plus a couple of others, and I, I'll do uh, mine's in advance in speed fashion. Okay. People talk about slavery in past tense, but I saw uh, a woman of color, elderly woman of color, color, being mauled by police dogs for doing nothing more than taking out her garbage. This is what happens when slave catchers 
run around in your community. They could have took that dog off of her with a single command, but instead they let him just keep gnawing on this old woman. I saw another video where a pregnant woman uh, was in jail by the name of Martini Smith, and because she did not comply fast enough, this male slave catcher or overseer next to a female overseer tased her, and she lost her baby five days later. That's what happens when slavery is alive and well in your country or in your nation. And I saw another video, which Scotty's going to talk about, where uh, a cop who had a uh, heavy assault rifle with the words, you're fucked, on the rifle itself, shot a man at point-blank range uh, and murdered him in cold blood and then walked away scot-free with no uh, kind of uh, price to pay for it at all. He lost his job, but... Yeah, I, he well, lost. Yeah, he lost his job. He was fired, but I'm sure, like we saw in the case of Timothy Loman, who killed uh, Tamir Rice. Hey, they just go to another town or to another state. So in that regard, no, he did not suffer any penalties. Um, the first one that you mentioned about the elderly black woman who had only one hand because the other one had been damaged by a fire that she had been in and that wasn't the first civilian who was attacked by this same dog and same slave catcher they had been cited and he had been reprimanded before for letting his dog run wild on a long leash and not controlling him so this wasn't the first time and he had been reprimanded for it before and now here comes another victim where as Max stated she was taking out her trash they were in the area so called looking for a burglary a burglary suspect and the dog ended up attacking her and she had to go to the hospital as a result of her injuries the woman who was in prison it wasn't so much as she couldn't comply fast enough, I speculate that she was unable to comply. When you, you know, as someone else confirmed to me, the issue was she couldn't take out her tongue ring. Now, there's some hygiene, you know, (laughs) involved here, but there are people out there who wear these tongue rings or studs or whatever they're called and never take them out for a year or two. It's not hard to imagine imagine a piece of metal rusting in place and you're unable. And someone commented to me saying that, you know what? I had to take a pair of pliers one time to get my ring out after I had it in for a year. And, And so this white woman who was pregnant, like was, and this pissed me off too. Rose McGowan, who's been cited for the Me Too, when she got arrested, for cocaine possession, all right? She didn't even get booked into jail. She just turned herself in, took a little photograph, got her fingerprints, and she was out the door. She did not experience what that white woman experienced. This pregnant white woman with no top on, okay? Then this female slave catcher calls in this male slave catcher I'm like that's totally inappropriate this woman ain't got no she's trying to cover up her breasts and now you're trying to force her to take out a tongue ring she's telling you she can't get out that woman ended up losing that child as a result 
of being tased. So that child, for those people who who say who claim to be fighting for these unborn children and what have you, wh- why aren't y'all highlighting this woman's case on so many levels? What about her too? You know, her too. Because to me, there was some sexual violence involved in that with her being half naked the way she was and then her miscarrying as a result. And the last story, could you say that again, Max, which was which, the man who was shot yes. in a hotel, a, a, a white father of two girls, I believe. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anybody who watched that video should be outraged and disgusted. That man was on his knees with his hands up. Where we where we have we seen that before? That was a whole chant during when Michael Brown got murdered. Hands up, don't shoot. Here's this white man on his knees with his hands up, saying and said to this slave catcher, "Please don't kill me. Please don't." Literally begging for his life. Now all that slave catcher had to do was tell that man to lie forward on his face and and, and then have one of his slave catcher buddies go and put the handcuffs on him. That ain't what he did, though. He gonna humiliate this man, torture this man, terrify this man. Crawl on your knees towards me. Crawl crawl on your knees. Come on, y'all. That was a blatant murder. And... All of those people that was on that jury that acquitted him, you an accessory to murder. I'm sorry, but I mean, those stories really got me heated. It got us all heated. Sister Layla. Those are the things you expect to see in slavery. Sister Layla, did you have any comments? No, I didn't. I think you took care of it. And I'm glad to see that you're highlighting just not the... um, the people of color who are being gunned down by the slave catchers, but showing how um, effectively that this hurts all of our, all people, um, particularly poor whites and people of color. The thing that just I want to emphasize to any of our white listeners is that um, Lyndon B. Johnson, and I'm not going to be able to paraphrase, I'm going to paraphrase, I can't quote it exactly, but basically said that you can take the poorest white person, excuse me, and make them feel superior to a black person and you'll have them forever. Just that thought in itself means that much. And it's time that we start looking at these things because we're both getting played and we're all getting hurt. So it's best to me that we start looking at these things on what's really going on. So the slave catchers and and the, the, the black men that we see mostly were being murdered by police. We see mostly on the internet and on television. Um, we want to open up that dialogue and look at the other, the white people, basically, because brown people, they already know they're catching hell like us. But on how this is, this lack of self-determination that this government gives people who are not rich, that puts us all in the same boat, and let's push together. So I agree. Thank you, Scotty, for making sure you highlighted that. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I wanted to point them out, too, just to make sure that people understand that there is no post-slavery. It's still slavery. And these are the things you expect to see when slavery is legal, where police would, you know, you're fucked on the side of his rifle could stand there and murder a man and walk away free, Scott Freeware, where they could make a woman lose a child and tase her in a prison cell, you know, with this 
while she's naked <laughs> and they can walk away with no issue at all because it's what's expected of them. They're expected to act like slave catchers. That's true. All right, well, let's get into our last segments here and see if we can go through them real quick. I want to start with the kingdom coming, the largest slave rebellion in U.S. history. And I say it's a matter of perspective because it is. So I thought that this person was very insightful in pointing out that this particular instant in time was the largest slave rebellion in U.S. history. Oh, Max, uh, before you start, Sister Layla, if you want to take the abolitionist in profile, I'll take the Underground Railroad writer after Max. Okay. Okay. Perfect. All right. It starts out, uh, actually, it, this was written March 29, 2012, and it says, over at present in the past, Michael Lynch recently posted a provocative question in the accompanying video about slave revolts. It got the wheels in my head turning. It also helped that Monday night was my first lecture scheduled on my course syllabus to dig into the political war. My mind's been swimming with concepts of violence and resistance, freedom and slavery. So what was the largest slave rebellion in U.S. history. That requires a key definition. What is a slave rebellion? Toussaint Louverture and his fellow revolutionaries in the St. Dominique Rebellion, one of the first truly successful slave revolutions in world history, certainly throw light on one necessary ingredient, blood. The Haitian Revolution's iteration of slave rebellion was truly violent work undertaken by one race of men against another race in response to their subjugation in spite of the master class espousing the tenets of freedom. For Toussaint Louverture, that master race were the French. Violence was the first national language of Haiti. Prosser's slave uh, Gabriel planned his revolution at the turn of the 19th century amid the growing state capital at Richmond. Likewise, chose violence as his language. But Gabriel more than likely had fewer than 30 allies. On Bastille Day, 1822, Denmark Vesey planned to rise up with a few more than 100 slaves to strike Charleston, South Carolina. The plan leaked and it went nowhere. Just shy of a decade later, down the road in Southampton County, Nat Turner likewise echoed the idea of violence in service of freedom. Nat Turner's rebellion saw an army of as many as 200 slaves rising up to kill over 50 local whites. The LearnLiberty.org link Michael posted on his blog points to the Black Seminole Revolt, claiming that John Horse and his fellows led the largest slave revolt in U.S. history, but I'm not so sure that's true. The largest slave revolt in U.S. history involved nearly 5,000 slaves from Alabama rising up to strike a blow against their masters. Over 5,000 more joined in from South Carolina. Mississippi saw 17,000 black folks seize arms and draw a bead on the master class. Nearly 25,000 men from Louisiana joined the fight to secure freedom. All told, nearly 100,000 black men from across the South rose up in this slave rebellion, carried guns, and killed those who would see them manacled and sold to the highest bidder. With them were nearly 80,000 black allies from the North, joining the fight alongside their enslaved brethren. This mass of men in open and hostile rebellion against the government and economic system, which would see them reduced to chattel, blows any other slave rebellion out of the water in a test of scale. Never since the world began 
was a better chance offered to a long enslaved and oppressed people, the opportunity is given to be men. With one courageous resolution, we may blot out the handwriting of ages against us. The American Civil War could be seen after the Emancipation Proclamation offered black men throughout the United States the opportunity to be received into the armed service of the United States as the greatest slave rebellion in U.S. history. Much like the wildest dreams of John Brown, Nat Turner, or Gabriel Prosser, black men were now marching across the South, physically destroying the institution with every bullet they fired and forward step they took. They were grasping manhood, proving their mettle, and speaking a language of rebellion. Frederick Douglass quotes, the hour has arrived and your place is in the Union Army. Remember that the musket, the United States musket with its bayonet of steel, is better than all mere parchments, guarantees of liberty. In your hands, that musket means liberty. What happens when we, for a moment, think of the Civil War as the largest American slave rebellion? It is a familiar, simple game of language. I will admit, these games, though, are instructive. They throw a new perspective into the war, forcing us to see the war through fundamentally different eyes and from radically different perspectives. Was that thrilling emotion felt by a USCT soldier donning his uniform and firing his gun for the first time really all that different than the emotion felt as Nat Turner's men swung axes against their master's skulls? Both times, men were simply responding to a violent system with the only language that system would understand, violence. And tonight here on New Abolitionist Radio, we remember the American Civil War as the largest slave rebellion in U.S. history. Salute to them brothers and sisters, because let's not forget our sisters' role in the Civil War, particularly famed abolitionist Harriet Tubman, who actually led U.S. soldiers on a raid of a plantation and freed about 700 people. And it is well documented that she worked as a spy for the Union Army. But I agree with that assessment. And also, while I do acknowledge and appreciative of the white abolitionist comrades of the period, because John Brown's sons also fought in the Civil War, but let's let's promote the true narrative that these people basically freed themselves while saving the Union as well. Shout out to the author John Rudy. Yes, that was great. It um also kind of saddens me that um after all that fighting and everything we did, that after um Reconstruction that um, the Union basically turned their backs on Southern blacks. They went back to what was familiar with them and allowed um, convict lease system. They had some of their own and other forms of um, slavery on steroids in some instances to occur. It really makes us know that we really don't have many allies as black people, and that's sad. Right. Thank you. Well, next on our list. <laughs> um, I'm doing the abolitionist profile, aren't I? Yes, yes ma'am. I believe so. Okay, we're talking about um, Topper Bernie. 
Yes. I'm still anti-slavery advocate, ancestor of to- ancestor of Topper Bernie, included in PBS abolitionist profile. James G. Bernie, great great grandfather of Huntsville Board of Education member Topper Bernie, was an early anti-slavery advocate. <laughs> Huntsville. <clears throat> Huntsville, Alabama. Back in the early 1800s, Huntsville's James G. Burney was stirring up trouble. It was long before the Civil War or the Emancipation Proclamation when Burney began calling for an end to slavery, and it wasn't a popular stand. There are two stories that Topper Burney, a Huntsville Board of Education member, and James G.'s great-great-grandson. One is that he was asked to leave town, and the other was that he was told to get out of town. Whatever the story, Bernie left Alabama in 1932 and headed north. He stayed vocal about the need to end slavery and is considered one of the first abolitionist leaders. He's also the only person in Alabama who has pinned so far on the abolition map of America, an interactive map that shows people and places from the abolitionist movement. Susanna Lieberman, that active, the archivist at the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library, contributed the information about Bernie to the map, which is part of a website for a three-part American experience drama called The Abolitionist that will broadcast on January 8th, 15th, and 22nd. The program will focus on five leaders in the movement to end slavery, Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, Harriet Beecher Stowe, John Brown, and Angelina Grimke. Many more people, however, were part of the movement, said Casey Davis, a special project assistant for American experience. The map and other features on the website are a way to expand on the program and provide information about other important people and events. Individuals and organizations are encouraged to pin items on the map, Davis said. The show staff began researching the abolitionist movement months ago, Davis said, reaching out to libraries and other historical repositories to ask for contributions to the site. She contacted Lieberman, who said, I jumped on it immediately. Lieberman called Topper Bernie, and the two collaborated on two short videos that show the site of James G.'s home at 120 Lincoln Street and his law office at 301 Franklin Street. You can take a tour of abolitionist sites on your computer, or you can go to the site yourself, Lieberman said. James G. Bernie had a lot to lose by taking a stand against slavery. He had been elected alderman and the mayor of Huntsville, helped found the first public library, and was the Green Academy Board of Trustees. He was also one of the first board of trustees for the University of Alabama. He helped find professors to teach at the newly established school, Topper Bernie said. He was also paradoxically a slave owner himself. He moved to Madison County in 1818 from his native Kentucky to a plantation near Triana. He always believed, however, that slaves should be treated well and even brought people to get them out of abusive situations, Topper Bernie said. He did ultimately free his slaves, and he moved north first to New York and then to Michigan. He began an abolitionist newspaper, The Philanthropist, and was nominated twice as the Liberty Party candidate for president. While still in Alabama, he was well known for defending free slaves and being an advocate for the Cherokee. He was inducted into the Alabama Lawyers Hall of Fame in 2009. Topper Bernie, a member of the Huntsville Board of Education, portrays his great-great-grandfather, James G. Bernie, during an annual Maple Hill Cemetery. That's a nice picture. Topper Bernie is proud of his ancestor as well as his sons, William and David Bell, who were major generals in the Union Army during the Civil War. David Bell is commemorated on the Pennsylvania Monument at Gettysburg for his heroics during the battle. William, who was Bernie's great-grandfather, 
was instrumental in recruiting black soldiers during the Civil War, Bernie said. I think the Huntsville City Fathers are now and always have been progressive, she said. One of the things I constantly see is these amazing city leaders who always seem to be ahead of, be ahead of the game nationally. They always seem to be looking to the next thing, and that's still true today. I'm interested in this part of Alabama now. <laughs> Thank you, Max and Scotty. I love it. Word. It's amazing that he is the only abolitionist listed for the entire state of Alabama. Alabama was a very dangerous place to be during uh, the antebellum period and particularly during the fugitive slave laws uh, from Ohio. People had to go from Ohio to Alabama and rescue people to bring them back to Ohio on a regular basis. And that was the family of John Brown that had done that. Yes. So so salute to him. And as I've stated before in the past, we just don't know all the names who contributed to the abolitionist movement during that period and it is great whenever I can learn about a new person so thank you for digging that one up Max because at times we were doing the same ones you know because we've been on five years so at times we had to do the same one more than once so it's always great when we can find a new one so um, much appreciative All right. so let's get to our last segment before we wrap up and we are going to uh, talk about our underground railroad writer of the 21st century, uh, Mr. Anthony Ray Hinton. Uh, Anthony Ray Hinton exonerated from Alabama death row, freed from prison. Alabama inmate Anthony Ray Hinton walked out of prison Friday as a free man after 30 years on death row. He told a gathering of family and supporters that the sun does shine. Hinton, 59, wiped away tears as he lamented about the painstaking fight to clear his name in the 1985 fatal shootings of two Birmingham area fast food restaurant managers. His capital murder convictions were finally tossed Thursday after years spent arguing that the revolver that police say was used in the slayings didn't match the evidence at the scenes. I want to say to the victims, I would continue to pray for you just as I have for 30 years. A miscarriage of justice, just not for me, but for the victims, Hinton told reporters before turning his attention to the prosecution's faulty casework. Everyone who played a part in sending me to death row, he added, you will answer to God. He also thanked his attorneys with the nonprofit Equal Justice Initiative for securing his release after a number of stinging setbacks. Prosecutors have said they do not plan to retry Hinton. His attorney, Brian Stevenson, said a combination of racial biases against Hinton, who is black, and his impoverished background worked against him in getting his conviction overturned sooner. This is a very, very happy day, Stevenson said. It's a tragic day, too, because Mr. Hinton spent 30 years locked in a 5 by 8 cell, but he's an extraordinary human being. And we at New Abolitionist Radio, welcome to freedom, Mr. Anthony Ray Hinton. Welcome to freedom, brother. All right. 
time to wrap yeah. it up. That was dope. Yeah, it, some of my favorite things about the program is learning as much as anything. You know what I mean? Because we're conduits. We're bringing it in and sending it out. And uh, learning about these different instances is good. All right. Who wants to uh, take us home tonight first? Ladies first. <laughs> well, I want to say thank you. Um, this has been a highlight. This week has been eventful. And um, I really want to give a major shout-out to all of our um, returning citizens and those behind the belly of the beast who are pushing for voter enfranchisement and all of those allies who are pushing with us. Thank you, guys. Um, this show has helped, helped concentrate my efforts as an abolitionist. And um, as we go out there and we, we do intersectional work and we try to build momentum, we can never forget what our game plan is. So thank you. This has been a great show tonight, and I'm going to look forward to next week. Thank you, Sister Yes, Lady. sir. Thank you. Um, I want to thank uh, those who called in with their questions and their field reports. It's always good to hear from those who are listeners and, more importantly, abolitionists. I just want to go back to earlier in the program, and Sister Layla just kind of hit upon it uh, with her final comments, but that 15th Amendment, this is, I got that, I got that Eureka, I found it feeling the same as when I found out that the uh, 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery. It was like my eyes just got wide open after reading the Supreme Law of the United States of America Incorporated. So let me read for you again the 15th Amendment of the Constitution. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or most importantly, in, in terms of abolitionism, or previous condition of servitude. You know, at times, like when we did our America is Ferguson series, and we identify what we deduce to be RICO violations in that Ferguson report. Although the report itself just said federal laws were violated, uh, myself, Max, and Johanan, you know, as we do on this program, uh, molded over, think tanked it, and we was like, you know what? America is Ferguson, and these are RICO violations. And then maybe half a year, a year later, we hear about an organization charging a bail bond, suing a bail bonds company in the civil courts under RICO and put them out of business. I think that if those who work in that field of law will arm themselves with the 15th Amendment, I do believe that they will be able to restore the voting rights of all the victims of slavery in this USA. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Layla. And thank you to the callers and everyone who is an abolitionist in this modern period of slavery and human trafficking. Yes, sir. Indeed, man. I, I, reckon, I, uh, I echo your sentiments and say thank you to everyone and all our listeners that continue to support us in our endeavors to bring these things to light. I'm going to end it with a quick poem. It's a quintain. It says, 
We demanded change and they gave us bitcoins. We demanded justice and they took time. We demanded freedom and they stole liberties. We demanded equality and got marginalized. We demanded peace and it caused war. This has been another episode of New Abolitionist Radio. Remember, abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake break and fall if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all rise up no matter if the prize is high in the sky